Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Coming up, the New Zealand government's rocky relationship with rats. They want to kill them all, uh, get, get rid of them, make sure that they can't come back. And hundreds of thousands of grocery purchases inform a study on decision making. We'll be able to explain human behaviour so much better if we use real world data. Plus what to look out for in science as this year unfolds. This is The Nature Podcast for January the 12th, 2017. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. It's fair to say that rats aren't the world's most popular animal. But no one seems to despise them quite as much as the New Zealand government, as Sharmini Bundell has been finding out. Last summer, the New Zealand government launched a scheme that aims for an invasive predator-free New Zealand by 2050. By invasive predators, they mean... Possums, rats and stoats and weasels and and other uh, little creatures like that. This is Brian Owens, who's written a feature for this week's Nature. I asked him what New Zealand plans to do about these animals. They want to kill them all, uh, get, get rid of them, make sure that they can't come back, or, or at least that they, uh, they are able to stop them if they try to come back again. So they, they want to kill every rat, possum, weasel, etc. in the whole of New Zealand? Yes, for the whole uh, North and South Island and all outlying islands as well. Now, I've never been to New Zealand, but it's quite a big island, right? Yeah, it's a, a nearly 170,000 square kilometres. So trying to get rid of any species, let alone things like rats and possums that tend to hide in dark places, sounds like it'd be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a very uh, big effort. Um, that's partly why they've, they've given themselves you know, 35, 40 years to do it. There's a lot of experience with eliminating rats and things from islands so far, um, but those tend to be on sort of smaller, isolated islands. So this is the largest pest eradication effort ever in the world. Okay, and um, obvious question, why? Uh, have, have all these different creatures that humans have introduced actually been that, that big of a problem? It's been devastating. They've lost about half of their native vertebrate species. All of their sort of iconic things like the kiwis uh, are endangered. And um, you, you mentioned all the small uninhabited islands where they've already managed to get rid of all the rats and things. How tricky was that? Getting the last tiny little remnants off is always the hardest bit. Um, if you miss a pair of rats, you know, a single pair of rats can lead to 15,000 offspring in a year. So you kind of have to get it right the first time. If you fail, it's, it's too expensive to basically to try again. And for something like trying a country the size of New Zealand, 
that problem must be massively multiplied. Yeah, they'll have to do it in stages, obviously. So they'll start with sort of remote areas or a peninsula that you can maybe fence off. And probably the last thing they'll do is, is really be tackling the cities where there's so many people and so many places for the rats to hide that uh, that's going to be the, the really big effort. Just the idea sounds wacky to me. I mean, you've spoken to various experts. Do people think this is really possible? So with, the, with our current techniques, it, it's not really feasible. They're really going to rely on new science. I spoke to James Russell, who's an ecologist at the University of Auckland, um, and he's sort of leading the National Science Challenge on invasive species. Well, I actually spoke to James Russell, who proudly describes himself as... As an overqualified uh, rat exterminator. He's coordinating the research and development that will be needed for the government's ambitious plan. So this project is mainly focused on some of the biological and technical solutions, so looking at perhaps some of the new uh, molecular biology, genetic and genome-based breakthroughs, what they might lend, particularly some of the really new technologies like CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. But also, now that we can sequence the genomes of these pest species, maybe we can develop really targeted toxins that don't have side effects on other species. And um, one option with using gene editing like, like CRISPR is to try and make a species infertile. But how would you actually do that in practice? So the two aspects is we'd have to be able to find some way to, to increase infertility using uh, gene editing. And then we'd have to make sure that that infertility is positively selected for in reproduction because obviously... If the um, rats are infertile, they're not going to reproduce very well. So we might be able to do something like the Trojan female technique where the female continue to breed successfully, but the males have uh, infertility. And so then all offspring, generally the males become more and more infertile until eventually the population is uh, composed mainly of infertile males. And then the females can't find anyone to mate with and that might cause the population to naturally go extinct. Um, but there must be safety concerns with releasing genetically modified sort of extinction programmed creatures in, into the wild. Is that something you have to be careful of? Absolutely. We're, we're very wary that uh, genetic editing is a very, very powerful tool and that every species that we might want to remove from New Zealand is native somewhere else in the world. And we want to make sure that if we're working on an island, that there's no chance it can spread out to another island or, or go out of control. So we want to have a backup insurance policies, such as being able to reverse the, the genetic editing to, to undo it if something goes awry. Um, and for the last few straggler rats, trying to get rid of that those final ones, at the moment that's um, done using like dogs mainly, isn't it? But that's also something technology could help with? We might be able to develop um, electronic biosensors, so perhaps relying on the molecular detection that dogs are using, but being able to replicate that in the laboratory. Then we could leverage some of the other technological breakthroughs, such as uh, drones, um, which might then be able to go through the forest and, and actually hunt out uh, rats that have survived eradications or reinvaded areas where they've been eradicated from. I can imagine some rat movies in which the drones are hunting them down and the brave survivors have to flee from this terrifying advanced technology. I agree. It certainly sounds a bit a bit Skynet. So uh, that's why we're really just being cautious that with all of this technology we're, we're developing, that it's safe and that it's publicly acceptable as well. James Russell there. Brian Owens agrees that this is going to be a challenge but that doesn't mean we should dismiss this ambitious plan. You know, every conservationist I spoke to was like, well, it's crazy, but if anyone's going to do it, the, the Kiwis will. That was future author Brian Owens in Canada speaking with Sharmini Bundell. You also heard from ecologist James Russell in New Zealand. Brian's feature is available now at nature.com forward slash news. Stay tuned to hear how thousands of supermarket transactions are helping psychologists figure out how we make all those impossible snack decisions. But before we get to that, 
It's the research highlights read this week by Sharmini Bundell. Invasive wild pigs are causing big problems in the United States. First introduced to the southern US by Spanish explorers hundreds of years ago, they recently began a speedier spread northward. They eat practically anything edible, disrupting native wildlife and causing serious crop damage, costing $1.5 billion every year. A new study predicts the invasion will get worse. In the last few decades, the pigs have doubled the speed of their spread northwards, and if that continues, they will have hogged most mainland counties within 50 years. Worse still, global warming might make the climate of northern regions more swine-friendly. Read that study in the Journal of Applied Ecology. A small implant can be used to deliver drugs on demand. The mini machine is about a centimetre wide and is built out of materials that are compatible with the body. One version releases a precise amount of a drug when activated. The researchers tested it out by loading the machine with a cancer drug and implanting it under the skin of mice with tumours. Every two days, the team used a magnet to activate the device and release the drug. These regular, local doses were better at slowing tumour growth than a standard chemotherapy regime. Find that paper in Science Robotics. Thanks for joining us for a whole new year of the best research and science news. If you like what you've heard lately, then please do drop us a line, podcast at nature.com, or even better, write us a little review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show who might also like to listen. Adam, are there any other ways that listeners could help us get the word out about the show? Yeah, sure. They could hire a megaphone and start every day in the lab with a lively shout-out at close range. Mm-hmm. Or they could use green fluorescent protein to somehow spell out the Nature podcast to promote the show to the nematode community. You have no real idea how biology works, do you? No. You should listen to the Nature pod... Oh, wait. Never mind, you just stick to physics. Coming up shortly, is this the year that quantum reigns supreme? That's in the news chat with science fortune teller Lizzie Gibney. Before that... Kerry's been finding out how a wealth of data about grocery shopping can help researchers work out the answer to this fundamental question. Should I stay or should I go? The Clash posed this question in the early 80s, and they weren't the only ones interested in the answer. Psychologists have long sought to understand how people and animals choose between staying and going. In any decision that you make in the world, you're always trading off a choice between doing something you've done in the past or doing something new. This is psychologist Thomas Hills from the University of Warwick in the UK. We call this the exploration-exploitation trade-off. Do you explore new options, or do you exploit what you know? Understanding how people make choices like this, Thomas says... It's useful for a lot of reasons. If you want to know um, whether people uh, want to stay in their jobs for a long time, or whether people want to stay with their partners, uh, these are the kinds of things that will have you know, huge economic consequences. Under controlled conditions, psychologists have used the lab equivalent of a slot machine to watch how people choose, offering them an amount of money and seeing if they decide to stick with it or explore other options which are constantly changing and might yield more or less gain. These decisions are quite objective in the sense that more money is pretty much always what people choose. But what about all the other thousands of choices we make every day? The subjective ones. Which restaurant shall I go to? Which brand of coffee shall I buy at the supermarket? A group of researchers has been finding out more about how people make those types of choices. Here's study author Peter Reefer. 
choices that we make in, in the real life are often quite difficult because we have to interpret the outcomes of these choices subjectively. When choosing between your regular coffee brand and a new one, you have to interpret which will be best by comparing a few subjective qualities. Taste, brand prestige, quality, packaging. Previous work has suggested that in these subjective decisions, something weird happens. People often come to like things that they choose and, and they like the choices more the more often they have chosen them. People come to like what they choose rather than choosing what they like. Peter wanted to see if this pattern would hold if he looked at thousands of people behaving in the real world. This was his PhD project, which he did at University College London in collaboration with the UK supermarket chain Tesco. Peter and his team analysed almost 300,000 datasets, several years of anonymised, real-life grocery encounters in the aisles of Tesco. The data were split into categories including bread, beer, washing detergent and yoghurt. In the lab-based slot machine-type task, which I talked about earlier, when people aren't sure about the rewards, they're more likely to try new things. And in the supermarket too, people explored new options relatively often. But there was a big difference. They would sometimes come out of their exploratory phase and kind of get stuck in ruts. The data showed that the longer someone bought a particular product, the more likely they were to stick with it. That's the opposite of the slot machine-type behaviour. There are cycles where you stay with a product for a long time and you, you like it more and more the more you choose it. And then at some point, maybe because a friend recommends you something or any other reason, you explore something else. And then you reset this cycle and you're actually quite interested in exploring then until this streak of choosing the same thing gets to a certain length, and then your preferences become entrenched. These cycles surprised the team. They thought they'd see people exploring at reasonably steady rates. Thomas Hills can see the implications of this for nudging people's behaviour in the supermarket and elsewhere. If you want to help people make better choices, one thing you want to do is get to them early. So when they're younger or when they first start shopping in the supermarket. This, in some sense, this is quite obvious, right? So kids who grow up in families that have healthier parents tend to wind up being healthier adults. That's one very general implication. But this is data owned by Tesco's consumer science arm, a company called Dunhumby. Peter is now on Dunhumby staff. How might they look to use this data? The greater goal is always to um, help people find what they're looking for. Thomas translates this into one possible retail business model for me. If there are some individuals who are more likely to switch between products, they're more likely to respond to coupons or special offers or these kinds of things, then you can focus your, your uh, campaign on these individuals. Peter Reefer speculates that one day an app could buzz in my pocket to suggest that I don't buy my favourite deep-fried spicy snack for the 15th time in a row, but instead have I considered these healthier alternatives. Another of his scientific goals is to inspire other researchers to look into the fuzzy world of subjective choice a little more than they have in the past. And data sets like this one are a great way to do that. He admits it's not the easiest data to get your hands on. But there is a trend in social sciences to use big data more and more. We'll be able to explain um, human behaviour so much better if we use real-world data and we have the computing capacity and the data to do so. Now, if you'll excuse me, I just have to pop out for some crunchy, spicy fried snacks. Are you sure? This green salad is on special offer. 
Thanks to psychologists Peter Reefer of UCL and Dunhumby and Thomas Hills of Warwick University. Time now for this week's news chat and the first news chat of the new year. And instead of taking a look at what has recently happened, we're going to take a look at what might be coming up over the next year in 2017. And to do that with us, we have Lizzie Gibney. Hi, Adam. So first up, how do we actually do this? Do you just pluck these ideas from your own imagination? Yes, they come straight from my crystal ball that I keep at home. <laughs> um, no, we use just the collective power of nature minds, I suppose. So we uh, we ask all of the reporters, all of the editors of the research part of the journal, um, and everybody just feeds in ideas that they have about experiments that might be coming to fruition or really hot trends right now or projects that we know are supposed to be kicking off next year. And then we compile it all and then we tell you what's going to happen in 2017, we think. Well, some of them, I suppose, are more predictable than others. And you can always count on a good space mission to stick to an approximate timetable. You can. They occasionally get launches get pushed back a little bit, but generally they, they do save my bacon most of the time when I'm doing this story. So what can we expect from space in this year? So yet again, China's going to be quite big in space this year. So Chang'e 5 is a very exciting mission. So it's going to the moon and it's a sample return mission. So what we're actually going to see is the first samples taken back from the moon to Earth since the 1970s. Because if you think about it, the last time anyone went there were when astronauts actually were walking on the moon. And I think eventually they are they want to build it up and, and do more and more exciting lunar missions and maybe someday in the future, far in the future, not 2017, um, put people back on the moon. Anything further afield than all, lunar? Yes, indeed. We also have Cassini. So Cassini has been around, I think, for about 20 years now. This is a NASA mission. And what's going to happen in 2017 is unfortunately, like a bit like we had Rosetta do last year, it's going to go out in a blaze of glory. So it's actually going to do a few loops um, and go through Saturn's rings. Um, and that should give us some really, really spectacular data that we've never had before. And then it's going to end by diving into Saturn and breaking apart in its atmosphere. Tragic demise. Tragic. And it, I mean, this is a mission, as I say, 20 years, it's really been a staple. It's been around for such a long time and done some absolutely incredible science. But um, 2017 is the year it has to end. Well, those are, I suppose, uh, a bunch of missions to space, what observations of space are are we hoping to carry out over the next year? Well, there's one which I think is really cool, um, and this is called the Event Horizon Telescope, and it's going to do exactly what it says on the tin. It's going to try and actually image the event horizon of a black hole. Um, now, that's very difficult because even the, the closest black hole, the one at the centre of our galaxy, is actually still you know very, very small and very, very hard to see. Um, and so what they're going to use is, I think, about nine different observatories around the globe and, and kind of collectively, by taking observations at the same time, act like a planet-sized telescope. And that's going to happen in April. And because of the coordination, it's, it has to all happen at this very specific time. So um, in theory, it should be able to actually see the shadow that it casts on all of the superheated matter that's falling into it. So is that as close as you can come to seeing a black hole? Absolutely, yes. Obviously, you know, light doesn't come from a black hole. It's black. But um, because of, of the way in which it's pulling in matter around it, there, there is radiation 
radiation from that. Um, and, and so it is illuminated ever so slightly. A bit closer to home, we, we know now 2016 was the hottest year on record, beating, I think, 2015 as the hottest year on record. What climate milestones can we expect in the upcoming year? Well, so next year we know that um, China, for instance, is going to start its cap-and-trade system, which has been uh, long-awaited and could be a really big deal. You know, China is the biggest emitter out there in the world. And also, given that we're not really sure what the US stance is going to be on climate change in the coming year, it seems like it might um, be shifting somewhat with the uh, incoming Donald Trump, um, China might end up taking the, the hot seat on this, really, and kind of driving climate change mitigation. So that's that's something that we hope to see anyway. Um, and then, so as you say, 2016 was a, was a very hot year. 2017 might not yet again be uh, uh, the hottest year on record because we have, I think, the end of El Nino. Um, and there's a tiny, tiny chance that perhaps we may even see overall emissions um, fall. They've been... They've been flat, I think, for the last three years, perhaps. Um, and a number of factors to do with the economy and, of course, um, increasing use of renewables might mean that actually the overall amount of emissions the world is producing might just drop off slightly. There are also rumours about something called quantum supremacy, which I was surprised to see is nothing to do with an upcoming James Bond film. <laughs> I think I love the term. I think it's wonderful. And um, all it really means is com- uh, a quantum computer finally being able to do something that would be impossible on a classical computer. Um, I mean, and that's the whole point why people have been trying to create quantum computers. There are a number of groups... um Google, D-Wave, I think probably IBM and and, and lots of academic labs as well, think that they are close to doing this. Um, It's probably not going to be something super useful. Like They're not finally going to solve all our problems. But even that is going to be quite a milestone, I think, if it happens. I mean, 2017 is still a bit ambitious, but it it really could be this year. We've talked a lot as two physicists, we've talked a lot about kind of physics-y milestones to expect. Presumably those aren't the only things coming up. What, what kind of biological life sciences? Well, we should have lots more studies of the microbiome. So this is something that's been going on for a few years already, but should really, really hot up in 2017. So um, as I'm sure many of you all know, so this is the kind of collection of, of viruses and bacteria that live um, live within our bodies and are kind of symbiotic with us. Um, and over the years, people have been finding there are increasing links between microbiome and lots of other areas of health. And that's really set to... Uh, to take off this year as well, like we might see, uh, we see more studies into the microbiome's effect on on brain development and also on cancer. So lots of areas that weren't potentially as linked in the past are, are going to be studied this year. Um, and on the biotech side, there's also a very interesting therapy that looks like it should be ready to hit the market. So this is an immunotherapy, um, and of course, some immunotherapies have been around for a little while, but this one is the first of its kind because it actually involves genetically engineering a patient's own T cells and then putting them back into the body and using their own engineered T cells to fight cancer. It's a very complex and it has been very difficult therapy to develop. It's At the moment, it's a bit of a last-ditch approach because um, a lot of the trials that different companies have been doing have, have shown that it can be quite toxic and, in fact, there have been some deaths. But it has shown a lot of success as a last-ditch approach for people who have leukaemia and lymphoma um, and so despite some of these issues, it is finally looking likely to come to the market this year. So I think that that will be really exciting if it does happen. How do you feel about all these? If you were to take a bet, what percentage of these predictions end up to be true? Well, I would say probably 
80% of them are true within this year or the next two years. Wow, that wasn't the question. I know, but that kind of gives you a hint. Like a lot of the time people are telling us things. I mean, you know how it always happens in science. People say, oh, yeah, you know, come back to me in six months and, and I'll have the results. They don't. It's going to take longer <laughs> than that. But, you know, it's coming. So these are all things that are in the near future, if not 2017. Okay, well, we'll catch up with you next year and see how we're doing. Thanks, Adam. Next week, we return to complete normality with a full and fun-packed show for you. We're also hard at work prepping the first 2017 episode of Bank Chat. So keep an eye on your feed or head over to nature.com slash nature slash podcast to tune into that. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.